Giddy up, y'all. Primaries in full swing across Texas. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and fresh back from the campaign trail where, where, you know, where he'll be once again this coming week. It's Jeremy Wallace at the Houston Chronicle. Hello, sir. Uh, nice to take a little break from the road, talk to my friends, and get back mm-hmm. on the road. <laughs> yeah, you were you were all over the place. I was following along on Twitter. You were at Rice. You were uh, in the woodlands catching up with the Republicans who are running for uh, governor yep. against Greg Abbott. And he also has been going across the state as well, right? Yeah, he was down in San Antonio, made it over to Houston, uh, heads up to Fort Worth this weekend. So, yeah, it, it, it's it's all go all the time right now in primary politics in Texas. Yeah, of course, Abbott is trying to keep his message about being tough on the border. That's the main message from him. This new ad going up on television now features Brandon Judd, who's the head of the National Border Patrol Council. That's the Border Patrol Union. Joe Biden refuses to secure our southern border. He's crippled law enforcement and emboldened dangerous drug cartels, criminals, and human traffickers. That's why the National Border Patrol Council is proud to endorse Governor Greg Abbott for re-election. He deployed new resources to assist law enforcement, and he's cracked down on criminal activity. This is right as a judge in Austin opened the door for constitutional challenges to Abbott's crackdown on the border. You may have seen this, Jeremy, where some folks are saying that, look, this is just outside the jurisdiction of the state of Texas. And we talked about this a little bit uh, on the last couple of shows because I, and I have to admit that, and I said a version of this on the last show, I'll say it again. For a while, I kind of laughed it off as campaign rhetoric. And this is just, you know, photo ops by politicians, particularly incumbents who do wield some power uh, when it comes to these policies. Um, But it has become a thing that is a real world uh, deal for the soldiers who are on the border, All these people who are being called up in the National Guard, they're supposed to be the weekend warriors. And we had the reports about some of these folks actually taking their own lives and the suggestion being that in some cases they would rather do that than be sent down to the border. Right. And now you do have these legal challenges to it saying, look, the state can't do this. As I understand it, and I'm not a lawyer, but I know a lot of lawyers love this show. I've made that point before and they really do. Because they think that, I don't know what's wrong with them, but they think I get it. But when it comes to the Constitution, this this is the way I understand it and the way I would explain it on uh, immigration policy. It's not, and you, you've always heard politicians say, you know, and Greg Abbott will say this, Dan Patrick will say this, all of the Republican leadership will say it's a federal responsibility, right? They'll say that, but then they'll say Washington's not taking care of it, so we'll try to take care of it. It's not just, that's rhetoric. It's not just that it's a federal responsibility. It's in the federal government's jurisdiction. How do you know that? It's really not that hard to understand. In the Constitution of the United States, it mentions immigration and naturalization in the same sentence with bankruptcy. Yep. You know why? So, so what it says is that for immigration and bankruptcy, the laws will be uniform throughout the United States. In other words, States can't just make up their own policies about this stuff, right? And that's why when the state government in Texas or anywhere else will pass anything that has to do with immigration, they get sort of creative about it. The things that Governor Abbott has done, it's creative stuff, right? Like they are uh, arresting people on the border, not for immigration violations, but for criminal trespass, right? And that's why we got um, those stories about immigrants being forced onto private property, by law enforcement then being arrested for being on the private property for trespassing and then being held somewhere. But those aren't immigration. 
the reason I bring up immigration and bankruptcy, again, this is how you know it's in the federal government's jurisdiction. Did you know that every immigration case and every bankruptcy case, they're both in federal court for both those issues, right? Yep. There are no state proceedings on those things because there's no state laws about those things, right? Not that that they can really be, you know, be dealt with in court. So here you have the potential undoing of some of what Governor Abbott has been, you know, making the points about on the border. And in the meantime, you have his opponents like Alan West and Don Huffines and his Democratic opponent, uh, Beto O'Rourke, attacking what Abbott has been doing on the border, which we talked about at some length on the last show. Meantime, you have Don Huffines, who got everybody talking about who I just mentioned. He, he, uh, he got everybody talking with that last television ad uh, that mentioned, uh, you know, uh, the Super Bowl win by the Cowboys. Yep. Well, he's sort of it seems like he's doing these television ads out of order. He was making all those promises before. And now he's doing a television ad that is sort of an introductory introductory ad of himself. He's got sort of a traditional-looking television ad that's up right now. Don Huffines, a businessman and one of the most conservative state senators in Texas history, never took a penny from the government. No paycheck, no pension. He's conservative. They say he's one of the most conservative ever. You saw Huffines, West, and I'm using entertainer very loosely here, and entertainer Chad Prather who's also in this Republican primary, you saw them all in action. Uh, Huffines was, he was at Rice University, but then also uh, at this forum with those three candidates, minus Greg Abbott in the primary, and they were in the Woodlands. What, what was that like? Yeah, and, and, and you know, certainly the, the border issue came up quite a bit, obviously, uh, in the discussion. And, and like, and if you think, you know, it's weird because like you think Don Huffines and Greg Abbott and, uh, and Alan West, when they got into this race, it kind of forced, Greg Abbott to get more aggressive about the border, right? We didn't mm -hmm. think it could be true that he could get more aggressive, but he did. He started sending more people, and Oper Operation Lone Star has got a lot more troops and a lot more DPS officers sent down to the border after they got into the race. We know that for a fact. Well, what was interesting, Alan West particularly came out, you know, talking about this at the Woodlands, where he said, you know, look, Operation Lone Star is a failure. It's a political optic. Talk about strong words. It's something you almost expect the Democrats to say. Right. But here he was, you know, you know, teeing off on Abbott, you know, for trying to make a political show of the National Guard's people who West seems to be, you know, pretty, you know, sincerely concerned about giving he himself mm -hmm. was both in the United States Army and a, and a veteran of the Army. And so he kind of knows, you know, a little bit of that territory. So he's really hammering home mm -hmm. at this that what Abbott's doing is really a game uh, and Huffines you know, jumped onto the same thing, you know, you know, talked about what we've talked about before on the show. You know, he says if Abbott wanted to fix this problem, he could have done it any time in the last seven years. It's like it's just really over the last few months he's been kind of making this move. Uh, and so he, it, it's, it's, it, it's a tough crowd, though. You can see that, like, Weston, Huffines, and Prather have kind of a limited window in order to build some momentum. And it's hard to tell, you know, in, in a group like this, there were like 350 people there. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah. but remember, we're going to have like a million and a half people who vote in this Republican primary. Does mm -hmm. do people who don't go to this rally know who the heck these guys are? And that's probably where, like, not. Yeah. How much is Huffines going to be able to advertise in Houston, in San Antonio? Like all these guys are from the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex, right? It's like none of these guys have any sort of 
footprint whatsoever in Houston and San Antonio. Nobody's ever heard of these people. It's like, when do they do something that makes somebody in Bear County, Texas go, oh, I've heard of that guy. Right now, I bet you not many Republicans in Bear County or Harris County or wherever outside of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex know who these guys are. Yeah, the only nuance I would add to that is West, for example, has been someone who's on uh, conservative media nationally all the time. And you know, it, the point has been made uh, by one of the former senior advisors to Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick that if you can appear on Fox News Channel or on Newsmax or some of these other national conservative outlets, it's not just that you're on nationwide. Of course, you're on in Texas too, right? Yeah. And so uh, West has been you know, described as sort of a conservative rock star, somebody who the grassroots knows and did spend some time as the Republican Party of Texas chairman. Uh, so he does have some name ID in that respect. But I did see this poll that his uh, campaign was promoting that showed him in the lead over Governor Abbott. And I have to tell you, I just don't believe that for, for a few reasons, one of them having to be uh, the, the dynamic that you're describing. Two is, and I had to give some folks a lecture about this on social media earlier in the week, the company that conducted the poll, as far as I can tell, is just not credible. Uh, the owner is somebody who's been really a con artist here in Austin and you know uh, did a few things in the past that were seen as stunts like secretly filming lawmakers at the Texas Capitol and you know getting uh, big uh, uh, donors to the Republican Party to you know give money to his effort to try to expose corruption at the Capitol, sort of James O'Keefe style which never really amounted to anything. Um, and again, with my lecture, Check your sources on this stuff, people. I saw where Newsweek even wrote that up as if it was some legitimate poll of the Texas governor's race. I did see some polling uh, that was individual Texas House districts uh, around the state. Uh, and in some of those, the governor in the primary, because because you know they'll ask questions about the Texas House candidates, and then they'll also poll people about the other races on the ballot. Um, and the governor was as high as 70% in some of those Texas House districts uh, against these three challengers. I don't know if he's as high as that all across the state. We'll all have to see. And as you know, in Texas, there is a paucity of public polling. In other words, we don't get a lot of it. So a lot of this we do by feel while the political professionals actually get uh, access to a little better numbers. Yeah. And there's a little bit of a journalism uh, malpractice happening with some of that. Like, you know, it's like, look, I already, you know, people have heard me complain about you know, reporting on public polling for a long time, mm -hmm. but private polling is even worse. You know, it's like the thing is, if you can't see the questions that they asked, if you can't see, you know, the, you know, their information, there's a problem, right? You know, in this case, it's like, so, you know, it didn't take too much of a rocket scientist to figure out, look, the Allen West campaign says they're winning this race. See, the people they hired to say that yes. are saying that. Right. Can't you see? Mm -hmm. It's just like, there's a point where you just have to go, I appreciate your internal polling, but you know, right. Well, what I don't and, and that's why a hundred percent. That's why you have to look at who did the poll. So look, I'm I'm in favor of reporting on internal polling, but I have to be able to see the things you're talking yeah, about. You have I have to, to be able it. to see who did the poll, what were the questions, and sometimes I may not. And this is you know something we do at Quorum Report. I can source things a little bit differently. I might not report out everything that's in the poll, but I will take a look at it to see if it was done legitimately, if this is a credible pollster, yes. um, you know, if they're using telephone interviews versus some opt-in internet thing, which is terrible polling, to be honest with you. Now, while, while all this is happening, uh, Beto O'Rourke is on the attack as well. We have a general election as well as the primary that's coming up real quick here. And and what did you say the uh, 
the first ballots could be back uh, as soon as next week. Yeah. Is that right? If people are listening to this over the weekend, there's a chance people have already voted or have sent their ballots in. The military and overseas Mm -hmm. ballots have to be out in the mail this weekend. And a lot of those folks, you know, turn those, you know, ballots right around and send it right back the next day. So it's like they really could have the first ballots counted uh, or at least, you know, into the offices in Texas uh, by Monday. So that's how quickly this happens. Huge challenge to be able to get your message out, get your name ID up, uh, you know, if you're a challenger. And what do you know? Election law in Texas tends to favor people who are already in office, incumbents. Um, So uh, Beto on the Democratic side, he was on the attack uh, on a couple of issues. Uh, You know which ones, right? The grid and the coronavirus response by Governor Abbott. Some of this had to do with the fact that Austin, the city of Austin, is trying to clamp down once again some of the restrictions for COVID-19 as the Omicron variant uh, just rages in this community and others. Uh, Beto held sort of a Zoom meeting, sort of a Zoom press conference, right, with some mayors from around the state, uh, along with journalists like Jeremy. Uh, And Beto was saying that, look, Abbott is way out of line because he won't get out of the way when mayors like uh, the uh, the top guy in Austin, Steve Adler, want to do something about what's happening in their towns. From mayors and county judges and public health officials from across the state, they they have not heard from the mayor unless it is the, uh, I mean, the governor, unless it is the governor telling them what they are not able or allowed to do. And Mayor Adler just described that as well in Austin. I mean, from a, a governor who used to say that he wanted to, to allow business to do what they wanted to do and get out of the way, he's absolutely getting in the way of these businesses, protecting their employees, their customers, and their communities. I would say that Beto does have, uh, you know, a pretty decent point there about the fact that Abbott, you know, just a couple of months ago was at least saying that businesses should be able to set their own policies. Now, Abbott has started to push back against that. And as we mentioned, uh, you do have the Supreme Court uh, now saying that the Biden administration's, uh, you know, directives to try to get big businesses to uh, have vaccine mandates, that that is blocked, at least for now. Uh, Abbott has been trying to battle it in the courts while you have his Republican challengers saying that he ought to call a special session of the legislature right now. And those challengers are doing that with the support of the Republican Party of Texas. The chairman, Matt Rinaldi, has been pushing that and pushing petitions to try to get a quick special session. Let me tell you something. Those special sessions don't happen quickly. Yeah. It's not, they, they, say, they say that it would be a four-day special session, that it, will, it would take less than a week for lawmakers to come in and pass bills that ban vaccine mandates, even by private employers. Um, And this is something that puts Republicans in a tough spot, Jeremy, because in this state, when you have, and other places as well, but especially in Texas, when you have every major employer group saying, please don't do that, don't get between us and our workforce on what our vaccine policies should be, at the same time, you have this populist streak within conservatism, within the Republican base that says not only should the government not be able to tell me that I have to get a vaccine, but businesses should not be able to tell me if I work there that I have to have a vaccination. If you've been a Republican office holder in Texas for years, you are somebody who has often made the case 
that employers should be able to set the policies for their businesses, right? I mean, yeah, complete just right in the to last... work state, right? You know, we've been well, we've grown yeah. up in this world where an employer can decide to hire or fire you on any reason whatsoever, you know. But we're going to say, except for if you don't get a vaccine, you know, it's just like, right? How do you carve that out? It was a big push by Republicans and uh, employer groups in this state over the last couple of legislative sessions to have uh, local governments not be able to set uh, local policies on things like paid sick leave uh, and scheduling and things like that. Um, and in the meantime, and you know, eventually, uh, you know, they get around to passing some of this stuff. It was interesting they weren't able to pass those things uh, quicker in a right-to-work state. Uh, but I think it does expose one of the weaknesses uh, for the Republican Party right now. Uh, and you see, while the local governments are trying to navigate the situation with COVID, um, the kinds of things that they have to put up with in their meetings. Did you see this guy who was rapping about the vaccines? In Dallas? No. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. You got to vaccinate in the Lone Star State. Oh, he went on and on and on. With the real Dr. Fauci, please stand up. Please stand up. Please stand up. Vaccinate your mom. Vaccinate your dad. Vaccinate the happy. Vaccinate the sad. Vaccinate your babies. Vaccinate them. Even if they got rabies. Vaccinate my life. Vaccinate my wife. Vaccinate your DNA. Vaccine created by the CIA. Vaccinate your body. Vaccinate me at the party. Vaccination freak. Vaccination freak a leak. I want the vaccine in my life. I want the vaccine for my wife. I want to vaccinate you all day long. Vaccinate you while I wear my thong. Vaccinate me. Vaccinate who? Vaccinate she. Vaccinate her. Vaccinate them. Vaccinate my friend. I want to vaccinate to the end. Vaccinate me pure L. I love you. What can I say? So when he said uh, the bit about pure L, he took out a bottle of pure L and sprayed it on his face and then started to, you know, Get get himself sanitized in front of the crowd. It turned out uh, that he was talking at some hearing, and you you have to love if you go on YouTube, you can search you know people saying crazy things during public hearings at yeah. local government meetings yeah. all <laughs> over the country. Um, it turns out this guy is some sort of a conspiracy theorist who's really mocking everybody, you know, getting vaccines and all that. Uh, but in the meantime, while those uh, city officials are listening to all this. Jeremy, it, I mean, you, you go through the numbers all the time. We, we have a serious problem with this Omicron variant right now, don't we? Yep. Yeah, we're, 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 we're approaching 12,000 hospitalizations. You know, to put that in perspective, we're, we're talking triple the number of hospitalizations, you know, really just since, you know, Christmas. It's like that we're, we're dealing with here. So it's like, you know, the hospitals are overrun. Remember, we were talking earlier how this was Amarillo and El Paso were dealing with the worst of it. Now Dallas mm. and Houston are overwhelmed, too. It's like the hospital system and the doctors and the nurses. It's like, I know I say it all the time, but, you know, these folks on the front line, like there's just no break for them. It's like, you know, how they're, you know, managing this, like, is just stunning to me. They have the workload that, you know, it's been nonstop, really. This is the fourth surge that they've had to deal with. And mm -hmm. we know, again, the majority of the people who are coming in through those doors are unvaccinated people. Thankfully, our vaccination rates are going up, right? And it's like we're closing in at about almost, you know, you know, three quarters of all of Texans who are eligible for the vaccination have at least one shot. That is mm -hmm. great, you know, at least one shot, you know, so it's it's a very small group of people who are like holdouts at this point. So that's good news for the rest of us who are trying to like not catch this darn COVID. 
Yeah, right. I thought the uh, embodiment of the fact that it is such a small group was even when President Trump was in Dallas with Bill O'Reilly, and we talked about it at the time, um, that, that when he said that he was vaccinated and boosted, even at a Trump event, it's a small group of people who start to boo at him. Yeah. Right. I mean, Trump can't even keep those folks, you know, in line, even though, um, you know, otherwise those, those are folks who, you know, some of them paid a lot of money yep. to see president Trump and they're still, you know, as loyal to him as ever. It It's the only issue I can remember that any of his supporters would boo him about. Is yeah. that true? Yeah. I think that's pretty much on Mark. Yeah. Amazing. Um, one of the races that I didn't expect to get as hot as it's getting is the uh, Republican primary for Texas Ag Commissioner. The, the, the Agriculture Commissioner is somebody who folks, uh, certainly in Republican politics, know all about. He's he's always called himself Trump's man in Texas, Sid Miller, who I will give some credit, uh, you know, as a political operator. This is somebody who was beaten for a state house race years ago. He was an incumbent. He was beaten as, a, as an incumbent uh, legislator and then went on to win a statewide office. Uh, you don't see that a lot. Yeah. Usually it's hard enough for somebody to be in office as a state rep or state senator and then move up to statewide. In this state, it's, it's like the difference between running for city council versus running for president of the United States. Really? I mean, yeah. the, the tiny little districts that state representatives represent. Um, and now Miller is up against a state representative who just came out swinging in the last couple of weeks, which, you know, I, maybe I shouldn't be surprised by it. I just, I was interviewing James White, who is a chairman in the Texas House, who's retiring, and he is challenging Sid Miller for ag commissioner. And I thought the interview was going to sort of go like, uh, you know, an introductory interview, him talking about his background and the kind of conservative things that he's done in the legislature. I was uh, guest hosting the Mark Davis show, and I had not even asked him about the incumbent. I didn't even say, what do you think about your opponent, Sid Miller? Um, and he just unleashed on the guy. Listen to this. We need a proven conservative. Chairing the Homeland Security and Public Safety Committee, I passed constitutional carry this session. It's now law. I work with my fellow legislat legislators. We triple border security. We passed the heartbeat bill and we banned critical race theory and uh, got more integrity into our election. That's in contrast with the current incumbent that's double taxes and fees on ag producers. Uh, he's used these extra revenues to uh, fund new uh, agency positions in the top level, six thousand salaries, even to his consultant's wife. He's saddled our entrepreneurs and farmers and ranchers with burdensome regulations. And now we're finding out that Sid Miller's campaign team has been meeting in the back alleys behind the Texas Department of Agriculture taking bribes and, 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 and swindles from poor farmers and ranchers and entrepreneurs that are trying to get their hemp business uh, started. He, they're taking tens of thousands in envelopes and taking it right over into the office of the Texas Department of Agriculture trying to buy access to hemp licenses. Now, let me tell you something, Scott. Those hemp licenses don't cost tens of thousands of dollars. And the reason I know that is because I co-authored the Texas hemp bill and those licenses are not to exceed $100. So we have taxes, we have burdensome regulations, and we even have crony taxes by members of Sid Miller's campaign team. 
I may explain here what he's talking about with the hemp licenses. So in recent legislative sessions, it was established that you can, as a farmer, grow hemp. You have to get a license from the TDA, the Texas Department of Agriculture. And as you heard Chairman White say, those are supposed to cost $100. The accusation is that Miller's top campaign consultant, who some have described as sort of his business partner, uh, a guy named Todd Smith, uh, who was arrested last year in connection with this allegation. Um, the allegation is that he was shaking down farmers for tens of thousands of dollars for access to be able to buy one of those licenses for $100. And someone said, well, how do you shake people down or take bribes for something that's only worth 100 bucks?" And one of the critics of Sid Miller said, well, if anybody could figure out how to shake people down for a $100 item, it would be Sid Miller. So I, that wasn't me saying that. But I had never heard this tone from Chairman White. In fact, I've known James White for years. I mean, he's been in the, the House for about a decade and, you know, some, one of my go-to sources on things that are happening at the Capitol. And you can hear in the interview, I was a little taken aback by the way he was talking about Sid Miller. I just had never heard this. And I let him know that, that to me, it seemed like this is a very new tone from him. Chairman James White, as fired up as I think I've ever heard you. I'm, I'm a little taken, taken aback. Well, let me tell I'll be you honest. Because I'm, 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 I'm taking it seriously. I'm yeah. A small no, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> dismissing any of this. It's just I've never heard you this this way. Let me tell you what I'm. I'm, I'm taking. I'm, I'm really taking this personally because I am a small beef cattle producer. I look at these farmers and ranchers every day. I look at these. Bar I love barbecue. I look at these <laughs> barbecue restaurant owners every day, and I just think it's horrible that we have a Republican doing this. These people in the great state of Texas. Little fired up there. Now, I also talked to Sid Miller, who was just dismissive of the whole thing. Well, that's just you know typical uh, election election year <laughs> politics. They filed stuff on me all the time. Of course, none of it, none of it, has ever proven true. And you said they filed charges on my political consultants, which that's not true either. He was picked up for questioning. Charges were never filed. He was never indicted. You know, the six months to do that is passed. So. Nothing there, nothing to see, folks. Move on. All this led to a confrontation between the two in a church up in Cook County, which is north of Fort Worth, up in uh, Gainesville, Texas, uh, where White was asking Miller about whether, and those radio interviews came right before this happened, a couple of nights later, uh, White was asking Miller whether his campaign consultant has a court date coming up to deal with these allegations. And, you, and, 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 and your campaign consultant has not been arrested? He has not been charged or indicted, no. And he has no court date? No. Yes, he does. No, he does. I have it right here. That's he has a court date. So he was holding up an iPad showing the crowd there at this church in Gainesville that here's the court date. And Jeremy, you can't make this stuff up. The court date for the consultant who's accused of, you know, maybe shaking down farmers for hemp licenses, it's on the it's on the primary date. It's on March 1st. And so all this coming to a head now, I do think that well, a couple of things. One, this is a low uh, money race, a low yeah. uh, finance rate. You won't see a bunch of TV ads about this. That This kind of a race is the kind where those forums, like we were talking about with the governor's race, they would matter more in a race like this, right, where you have uh, the Republican base learning what they know about these candidates by actually going and seeing them at a church in Gainesville or at a church in the woodlands like you were at for the governor's race where, you know, Governor Abbott can spend 
10 million bucks if he wants in this Republican primary. He could spend more than that, right? If he, if he wants to on television and uh, block walkers of his own and all that sort of thing. I do think that one, um, one thing that is a mistake that some of these candidates will make is when they have what people would describe as dirt to dish on their opponents. You've seen this a million times where they won't unleash it until right at the very end. Yeah. Of the whole of the whole deal, they won't even say what the accusations are until sometimes as early voting is starting or wrapping up. And I remember uh, that being the case when uh, David Dewhurst's campaign uh, was right in the throes of dealing with uh, accusations and and bringing up old things about Dan Patrick and his mental health history and things like that. And people say when you do that, they'll say, "Well, they look desperate." Yeah. Right. So if you're going to make your case on something like this, you need to go ahead and do it now. And something that you said before. Is maybe he should have been doing it before now. Yeah. If he was going to make if he was going to make a case like this against an incumbent, it takes a full. Don't you agree? It takes a full year in Texas for somebody to make their case against somebody who is in office. Beto O'Rourke has essentially, and he didn't um, announce until later in the year, but he's essentially been running against Greg Abbott for a long time yeah. now, right? I mean, since at least since the summer. Yeah, last January he he mentioned it on a radio channel. You know, it's like in El Paso, and it's been growing ever since. But you read my mind. It's like I don't understand why people in Texas take so long. You know, you know, again, politicians. You know, they know Texas, right? But I think even the politicians misunderstand how big this state is. You know, like yeah. speak. You know, you know, and not to take any away from you know, one radio audience, but one radio audience is not enough. It's like you've got to be laying that groundwork. For weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, it's like you know, for months, James White should have been talking about this and selling this to every newspaper he could. Not selling like in, in you know real selling, but just like pitching this to newspapers and TV stations and really kind of hammering it home, so it would stick in the electorate everywhere. You know, just like and all these politicians seem to wait to the last minute to do this stuff. But the most important thing about your radio interview, I thought, with Sid Miller, was a reminder that. His uh, campaign treasurer oh, I know. You is love still this. Ted Nugent. Yes, yeah, <laughs> the Ted Nugent is actually the treasurer. <laughs> Not that Ted Nugent is an accountant of any sort, right? We know he has no financial background, but man, he is the Motor City madman, and so he should <laughs> be able to run the campaign. <laughs> well, what's funny about it is, um, you know, when uh, Miller is just dismissive of all these accusations of unethical behavior, the things that he touts are, you know, the endorsement of President Trump, which he has, yep. uh, and the fact, he, what he said about Trump was that, that they don't get any bigger than that, Scott. You know, that, that's the top endorsement you can have is President Trump. And he goes out of his way, just sort of like Dan Patrick would do, uh, and say, I was really delighted. I was elated to get a phone call from President Trump just before the first of the year. <laughs> he said that he's got my back no matter what. He says, you can't get a bigger endorsement than that. And the second biggest endorsement would be my campaign treasurer, and that would be Ted Nugent. Um, you see this controversy in Houston this week uh, with one of the school board members there, uh, a guy on the Cypher ISD oh, board. Yeah. Uh, his name is Scott Henry. And this really blew up nasty, a, a big deal. And um, Henry is on defense now. He's saying that people are twisting his words. Um, but the long and short is that what he said about black teachers in schools came across as racist to a lot of people. Now, if he wants to say that any of us in the media are taking him out of context, I'm going to play his entire comments here for you so that you can judge for yourself. What he says is 
that in school districts where they're, and he lays out numbers to try to make this case. He says in school districts where there are more black teachers, the kids are more likely to drop out. And uh, this school board member was elected on the anti-critical race theory, uh, you know, slate of candidates, which was happening in school districts all over the place, right? This past uh, this past year. So here's what Henry said during one of these school board meetings just recently. Uh, you mentioned talking about people that look like us and things, which I would like to remind people. Our teachers are our most important asset within our district. I love our teachers. I love what they do for us every day. Uh, my kiddo loves our loves love her teachers. But I looked online. You were talking earlier about people that look like us, and we have such a hard time getting teachers. And I know it's such a hard hard job. Y'all have a hard job getting teachers. Very hard. Um, people just don't want to be teachers anymore, and I get that. It's hard. But SciFair has what 13% black teachers. I know you mentioned it earlier. Earlier. Do you know what the statewide average is for black teachers? Not at this moment, sir. Ten percent. Ten percent. I looked it up. The statewide average for black teachers is ten percent. Houston ISD, which I'll use the shine example. You know what? The, you know what their average number of percentage of black teachers is? Thirty-six percent. I looked that up. You know what their dropout rate is? Four percent. I don't want to be four percent. I don't want to be HISD. I want to be a shine example. I want to be the district standard. I want to be the place, the premium place where people go to go to be. And quite frankly, we have a limited budget with limited resources. And we have a great place. And let's don't mess it up for everyone else. Let's don't mess it up for everyone else. Now, the broader context was there was a conversation about diversity among the workforce at the school district. At a later board meeting, Trustee Henry said that he should have been maybe a little more eloquent in his wording there, but he said, shame on anybody else who is trying to twist what he said into something that is racist. Let me be very clear. Any suggestion that I said more black teachers leads to worse student outcomes is a lie, and those spreaders should be ashamed of themselves. Jeremy, I'm, I'm struggling with this. Anyone who suggested that what he said, and you heard him say all of it, yeah. and he's saying now, and now that he's gotten some blowback, he's saying that anyone who suggests that when I said that when you have more black teachers, more kids drop out, that, that that's somehow racist, that they're liars. Okay, this has the Harris County Democrats, and I mean not just the party, but top Democrats in Harris County who run that place, they're all outraged about this. They had yeah. a big news conference. <laughs> you had Lena. You had Lena Hidalgo. You had uh, Rodney Ellis, one of the county commissioners, former state senator, uh, and you had uh, among the speakers as well the chairman of the Harris County Democratic Party, Otis. I'm gonna I'm gonna get this right. You you, you were you were you were you were giving me uh, a little grief because I might not get the name right, but I know what it is. It's Otis Evagaro who is the chairman of the Harris County Democratic Party. And this is interesting. He grew up in the Cypher School District, and he says all of this is crazy. Those comments that I'm not even going to mention his name made right, right. Uh, is not reflective of this community. I grew up here, the son of immigrants. There's a reason why we're here. There's a reason why black teachers matter. There's a reason why Latino teachers matter. There's a reason why Asian teachers matter. And we have a moral obligation Damn the politics. We have a moral obligation to speak out when we see something is wrong. Desmond Tutu said, if you are neutral 
in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. Uh, yeah. History will not remember us of choosing the side of the oppressors. I'm telling you right here, we're going to fight. Cesar was right. Everybody else who's here, whether he resigns, whether he's removed by any means necessary, trust me, in four years, we will be back. Yeah. <laughs> in four years, we will be back. Yeah. We're going to plot. We're going to mobilize. We're going to organize. We're going to strategize. We're going to kick his butt out of office. Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo there as well. She went to school out in that area as well, which you may know. And she said this is shameful. I am proud as Lena Hidalgo, a Falls Eagle, who played <laughs> on the tennis team, even if I wasn't very good, to represent this incredible community and respect for the teachers, administrators, and every student in their community. But what's happened now is this vestige of racism. I see it as county judge. I see it when people push back against our voting rights work, when folks push back against our criminal justice reform, when folks push back against our work to prioritize the communities left behind from flood control, the worst hit first inevitably African-American and Hispanic communities when we fight for environmental justice, which is these African-American and Hispanic communities that are having to face. That is the racism that goes unsaid. Now, what we saw the other night was the racism said out loud. And if we allow this kind of thing in a public forum by a public official that represents a school district, what are we allowing? Very fired up. Very angry about this, Jeremy. And I wonder, and I've been thinking a lot about this, we talked about it on some previous shows, where this anti-CRT, anti-critical race theory um, push uh, by some in the Republican Party, including this school board member, it seems to me is the new, um, it's like, the, it's the new defunding police argument. Right. I mean, th- this is the thing that Democrats were just, uh, you know, attacked for over and over again in the 2020 cycle, where they were all accused of being people who wanted to defund the police. And the Democrats would say, well, that's not true. And they would almost scold us in the media for even covering that it had been said. Yeah. Right. They, they would say, y'all should just say that that's not true instead of Democrats coming up with some real pushback. Well, now I think Democrats see an opening to push back on this, on this critical race theory, this anti-CRT thing uh, from some conservatives, and they're exposing what the thought process is of some of these people who are sort of obsessed with this idea of critical race theory, which as we've talked about, is not even something that's taught in the schools. They, they can't, you know, the people who have been critical of this cannot even find where it's being taught anywhere. Um, but the, what I would say is blatant racism in those comments. And I don't know the guy personally. I don't, you know, I don't know what's in his head or his heart or anything, but the blatant racism that's in his comments to say that if you have more black teachers, then that means you're going to have more students dropping out. Well, that's just not actually borne out by the numbers. You know what they have in Houston in the HISD that they don't have as much of in the Cy Fair School District? In the HISD, they have a lot more poverty. Yeah, There's a lot of kids who are dropping out for that reason. 
I was covering the, and for other reasons as well, it's a dynamic situation when you're talking about public education. I was covering the Cypress Fairbanks Independent School District years ago. It was already the third largest district uh, going back to 2005, 2006, probably before that as well. Um, and I'm trying to remember what the enrollment was uh, at that time. I'm sure they're around 100,000 or something like that uh, now. They're only behind Houston and Dallas as far as school districts. But if the if the school board member thinks that because they're more diverse in Houston, that that's why they have problems, that would just not be true at all. Even 15, 16 years ago, in the Sci-Fair ISD, it was already incredibly diverse. It's I'm sure it's more so now. Um, at that time, when I was covering it, they already had 80 languages and or dialects that were spoken in the district. Wow. And I think that the diversity that you see in the other suburban parts of Houston, down in Fort Bend County, it gets talked about a lot more. And I think part of that is because it's a separate county. So people can say, oh, Fort Bend County is the most ethnically diverse county in the United States, which is true. If the Cy Fair area was its own county, it would be among those counties that's the most diverse, right? This is not, um, this, if, if people think it's all white people out in the suburbs, that's just not true. But you do have a lot of these immigrant families and people who are of all races, colors, creeds who live there who want one thing. And that main thing is they want a better education for their kids. And so they'll take them to one of these suburban school districts that has a pretty good record. I mean, he's right to say that Cy Fair does a pretty good job. He just kicked off this controversy by saying that we don't want to promote more diversity within our workforce, which makes no sense when right now these school districts are struggling to find people to be teachers. You would think they would want anybody and everybody you know who wants to be a teacher to come in. But I do think that this stuff, whether it's the the arguments over race, whether it's the arguments over vaccines and masks, all this stuff that's happening in the school districts, Jeremy, is one of the most potent things happening in politics right now because it's something that's eye level for people. It's their kids and it's their money and they're angry about these things. Yeah, and look what CRT is doing right now. It's like that discussion, you know, depending on where you fit on the, the political spectrum, it takes you right up in onto the line of, you know, really talking about some really delicate racial issues, right? You know, it's like, and it doesn't take much of imagination to realize that there are going to be people who cross that line because they're so close to it already. And I think what you heard at the Sci-Fair School District is somebody taking those philosophies, you know, all the way to the line and then going mm -hmm. one step way right too far, you know, right. way mm -hmm. too far. When you think about it, like, this is, you know, going to be MLK weekend, you're right. And you think about all the progress, particularly in Harris County. It's like, you know, not to you know, side with Lena Hildago, but like Hill, Harris County is so diverse at this point and it's mm -hmm. doing well you know, on so many measurements, you know, it's like the schools are doing well, you know, in general, you know, yeah, there are dropout problems in HISD that you want to get to. But really, it's like, it's really kind of impressive, you know, like how that diversity in Houston has kind of worked, right? You know, here you have somebody who's kind of pushing against diversity. You know, it's just, it doesn't seem to make any sense. Like the one thing no. you'd want to do is like, this is great, to, you know, for, you know, all kinds of people to get jobs teaching in our school district, no matter what their background. And he's make, seemingly mm -hmm. making the suggestion that, you know, well, if we hire more people who are diverse, there are going to be problems for us. It's like, mm -hmm. wow, I can't believe somebody says that out loud.
Yeah, right. And you, what you heard uh, Hidalgo say was him saying that out loud is um, is sort of revealing of the other things that don't get said out loud that are um, you know part of systemic racism. And what she was referring to, she said it. Uh, several different policy uh, questions, including um, the ease of access to the ballot when people are trying to vote and decide who's going to be in the halls of power representing them. Um, and there is a big push now in Washington, and I'm trying to figure out because I'm not there on the ground in Washington. I don't cover Congress every day. I know that a lot of Democrats in Texas are skeptical of whether this is really anything that's going to bear fruit, uh, but a big push by the president and by President Biden and by U.S. Senate leadership on the Democratic side to try to change the rules in the Senate to pass voting rights legislation. I hear from the folks around here, again, who are Democrats, who say, I'll believe it when I see it, because this has just been a lot of talk and no action. This is part of what President Biden had to say about it this week. Do you want to be the side, the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? This is the moment to decide to defend our elections, to defend our democracy. In the Senate, the filibuster rule says that unless 60 senators vote to uh, you know, move past a filibuster, then they can't go to whatever the bill is that they might uh, be about to debate. And that doesn't seem to be about to change. As far as I can tell, I, I, I'm kind of in the same camp. I'll believe it when I see it. Now, Texas House Democratic Caucus Chairman Chris Turner from Arlington said that if they can pass something in Washington that has to do with voting rights, if that ever happens, he said it needs to allow the Department of Justice to go back and take a look at the new elections bills that were passed last year in places like Texas and in Georgia as well. Myself and, and other Democrats uh, from Texas have been very clear with uh, congressional leadership in the White House that that it absolutely must be retroactive, uh, that we have to be able to, the Department of Justice has to have the ability to go back and look at laws that have been enacted in Texas and in other states over the last year, uh, whether it's redistricting or the vote suppression bill, uh, and be able to uh, review those. In Texas, in 2011, the Texas Senate, the Republican leadership, made a carve out to their rules to pass a bill. Do you remember what the bill was, Jeremy? No. This is a good one. This is a good one. It was the strictest voter ID law in the country. Okay, so so until uh, 2015, there was a rule in the Texas Senate for decades that two-thirds of the senators had to agree to bring up a bill, right? And yeah. then Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick made it one of his causes you know, in his political career to change that. He had at first wanted to just have a simple majority in the Senate uh, so to pass whatever the majority wants to pass. And after he became Lieutenant Governor, he backed off that a little bit. And of course, they have tweaked the rules as they have gone through the legislative sessions in which he's been presiding over the Senate. Basically, and you tell me if I'm if I'm being unfair here, basically now the rule in the Texas Senate is that a supermajority is defined by however many Republicans there are. Yeah. Right. Is that, so, <laughs> so, in this state, so in this state, um, these bills can pass. But back in 2011, the Republican leadership had for a few sessions, I think starting in 2007, they didn't get it passed in 07. Then two years later in 09, they didn't pass it again. In 07, they started to try to pass voter ID. Didn't happen in seven didn't happen in 09. And so in 2011, 
when they debated their rules, Tommy Williams, Republican senator from the Woodlands, proposed, and it was accepted, a rules change to exempt voter ID specifically from the two-thirds rule. Every other bill had still had to uh, go through the two-thirds requirement for senators to agree to bring it up. But for voter ID, they'd go ahead and pass it. Now, I have brought this up with folks nationally and said, why is it this is never part of the conversation? Because everything they're talking about now nationally is what? Is pushing back on what Republican-led legislatures are doing. Places like Texas, places like Georgia, uh, and other states where they say they're, that the Democrats would say they're putting um, uh, voter suppression laws in place. But Democratic leadership in Washington, what's the question right now? They're saying, would they do a carve-out for voting rights legislation? And the Democrats in Washington cannot get on the same page about that, Jeremy. When And, you know, this is just – I'm not saying it's even – on this, I'm not even saying it's good or bad. But guess what? Republicans, if they were in charge, they would just go on and do it. And I don't have to guess that because that's what they did yeah. here in Texas, right, in 2011 and in other instances as well. Um, now, let me tell you what this is going to run into in the United States Senate. Democrats, not united – on changing those Senate rules, and Republicans like Senator Marco Rubio from Florida, who at this point, along with a lot of other Republicans, just sort of shrugs his shoulders over what happened on January 6th when Democrats and others have said, look, that was when you had democracy itself in peril. I think almost everyone would tell you that what happened on January 6th here was a terrible thing. It should never have happened, and it should never happen again. But I don't care how many candlelight vigils and musical performances you have from the cast of Hamilton. You're not going to convince at least more, most normal and sane people that our government last year was almost overthrown by a guy wearing a Viking hat and Speedos. Okay? And I don't care, you know, how many of these speeches the president gives in which he shouts out this hyperbole and, and, and all this melodrama. You're not going to convince people that having a state pass a law that says, for example, that you have to produce an identification is the same as segregation. Jeremy, the hyperbole aside, because I've really tried to avoid that in these conversations about uh, voting rights and elections laws, because look, I think, and we've talked about it a lot here on the show, if you go and look at what's in the bill that was passed by the Texas legislature, it's still not even agreed to by Republicans. One of the things that Sid Miller, uh, who was agreeing with President Trump, one of the things Sid Miller said to me the other day was, you know what, they actually weakened our law with that bill, Scott, that they took some of those penalties from felony counts down to misdemeanor counts for quote unquote voter fraud. Um, you have some things in that bill, Senate Bill 1 by Brian Hughes from, from uh, East Texas. One of the things that uh, Democrats have told me, at least privately, have told me they like is that if you move from one county to another, you can go online and yep. update your voter registration that way, which is, as one Democrat put it to me, they said that's halfway to online voter registration. That's the way most people would use it. It's a complicated bill, and it, it was a complicated fight. And I think if you go back and you look at the way that Democrats fought it originally in Texas with the first quorum break that they, that they uh, were able to execute at the end of the regular session – they had a real legislative victory there because after that, you had Republican leadership, including Dan Patrick, the Speaker of the House, uh, you know, House and Senate leadership pointing fingers saying they didn't even know how certain provisions got into the bill and that they would not revisit those provisions, including cracking down on souls to the polls in the African-American community, yep. including that stop the steal BS that had yep. to do with allowing for election uh, elections to be overturned by judges without any uh, real evidence of any sort of fraud. This is really nuanced stuff. But my main point about this is that if the shoe was on the other foot 
and Republicans were in the position that Democrats are in in Washington, they would go on and do what they wanted to do. And we've seen that over and over again. I'll give you another example. Mitch McConnell, when he was asked about moving forward with judicial nominations during the last year of President Obama's uh, time in office, what did he say? He said, well, you know, we should let the people weigh in on who the next president should be, and then we will get around to filling a Supreme Court seat. Well, that is not in the Constitution at all. Um, and when McConnell was asked, well, what if, um, you know, what if it was a Republican president? He said, well, then we would fill it. Why? He sort of he sort of answered that question by saying, why would you even ask that? It's just an attitude that Republicans have that Democrats don't. Yeah, well, and going back to the election bill, it's like, remember Lyle Larson, you know, the state representative from San Antonio who had questioned, you know, why they were putting all these voter restrictions on absentee ballots and, mm -hmm. you know, reminding people that the majority of people who vote absentee in Texas are actually Republican. And so right. maybe we were putting more hurdles in the way. And now we're seeing reports of you know, a lot of election officials in you know Harris County, Bear County are saying that they're throwing out applications for absentee ballots from people who always right. vote absentee ballot because they're putting on you know driver's license numbers wrong or they're putting a driver's license number that wasn't on the file. And so like there's literally Republican voters who are now being denied an absentee ballot because of this election law. Which, like, you know, I, I'm not saying that the Republicans should always listen to Lyle Larson, but they probably should have taken some notes here. You know, come to think of it, the people we don't want to put a barrier in are the good Republican voters. Those are all over 65. You know, not all, but a, a lot of them are over 65. They're going to be homeowners. They're going to be conservative areas. They're sending, you know, they want to mail in their ballot like they've done every election for the last 10 years, and now they can't do it. This bill... It was the ultimate example of just a mess that was um, really pushed in response to a made-up problem. Yeah. I mean, you had President Trump saying that he would have won Texas by a higher percentage if there had not been so much cheating going on in Texas, when that's just not true according to Republicans. That's just not true. According to the Republican Secretary of State at the time, who said that we had a safe, secure, and smooth election in Texas, there's just nothing to. And, and by the way, the audit that uh, the Secretary of State's office has been going through now of those four big counties, you saw where they released the first phase of that, and it just doesn't show anything, yeah. really. I mean, there's there's some little you know discrepancies here and there. There's always going to be discrepancies here and there. It doesn't change um, the outcome of the election. And maybe more important, it doesn't even change the um, the percentage by which the election was decided, right? Yeah. You, you're never going to have a completely perfect system if you strived for, if you were to strive for that and say that you cannot have any errors. And with, do you know of any system that's a bureaucratic system that has no errors ever? I mean, I think our elections do pretty well, yeah, given get, the fact that yeah, to have you, like mm -hmm. 17 million people and millions of votes to be tallied and to be like. You know, and we get it done. Ninety nine point nine percent, like on the mark. Know, that's a pretty good score. <laughs> it's it's pretty good. It doesn't change anything. And, and by the and when there's a when there's an election that's very close, I have uh, I have watched. I'm trying to remember. I think it was in um, two thousand nine. Um, it was it was uh, or it was two thousand eight. Uh, when one of the elections in Dallas County came down to just a handful of votes for a state representative seat. And the two candidates were separated by eight votes or something. I'm trying to remember if that was the right year. I'll go back and double check it. But the point is, when that happens, when there is a really close race like that, there's a process for dealing with it. Yeah. So, uh, and that's been in place 
for a long time. So uh, this is why it took eight months for them to pass that bill, because even Republicans could not agree on what should be in there. If they did agree, then the Democrats would not even, even they would not have been in position to do anything on it, right? They would have yeah. just steamrolled it through the way Republicans did here back in 2011 with voter ID. That is enough show. If you're a fan of this little program, we appreciate it. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. A lot more people listening on Spotify these days. However you listen to your favorite podcasts, um, give us the best rating that you can. You know, five stars, leave a nice review. We appreciate it. Uh, if you would follow us on Twitter, at Scott Braddock and at Jeremy S. Wallace, you'll get all the political medium to mild takes and lots of cigar pictures. Please subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.